You're listening to Choose FI Radio. The blueprint for financial independence lives here. If you're looking to unlock the secrets to financial independence and early retirement, you're in the right place. Stay tuned and join a community of like-minded people who are getting off the hamster wheel and taking control of their lives in the pursuit of financial independence. Choose FI, your home for financial independence online. Welcome to the Chooseify radio podcast. Today on the show, we are incredibly fortunate to have Dr. Jim Dolly, who is probably better known to the vast majority of people as the white coat investor. I am so blown away and excited to have this conversation because if I were to think about maybe the three or four people that have had the biggest impact on my financial course, my financial direction, he would have to be at the top of that list. And I say that because he is an ambassador for this model of personal finance where you go out and you get the information, you implement it in your life and you iterate it constantly, getting better over time. And while a lot of us take it for granted because there are so many people that are putting this type of information out there and it is readily accessible for the individual that's willing to dive into it. At the time he was doing this in 2010, 2011, and maybe even earlier than that, that was not the case. You were going to the library, you were going to the bookstore to try to dig this information out and then make it relevant for the current year. And I think this conversation both as a case study and what does it look like to build a brand, but also his origin story is just going to be incredibly fascinating. I am excited, genuinely excited about this conversation. To help me with this, I have my co-host Brad here with me today. How you doing, buddy? Hey, Jonathan, I'm doing quite well. Yeah, this should be a real treat. Jim has built an incredible network, an incredible website and podcast, and really entire empire there at the White Coat Investor. And it's really been impressive to see from afar and also to get to know him a little better. We had the good fortune of being on his podcast a few months ago. Now we're just thrilled to bring him and just his fascinating story here to the Choose FI audience. So with that, Jim, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. So Jim, I have always been fascinated by your content and just the precision and the accuracy of what you're putting together. And and I'm curious, where does this come from? Is your dad an accountant? Are you a third generation doctor? Tell us a little bit about your backstory. Well, the backstory certainly doesn't involve any accountants, nor does it involve very many financial advisors. Both of my grandpas uh, were veterans in World War II. One of them was a farmer and one was a miner obviously not a lot of education in either one of those categories. My father was the first to go to college uh, in his family, you know, going way, way back. And then my sister and I were the first ones that ever had any sort of a graduate degree. And so it's kind of a first generation experience actually making decent money. And so most of this stuff I've had to learn on my own. I didn't have any great examples teaching me what to do once you had, you know, a decent income. I grew up in Alaska. As I mentioned, my father was an engineer. My mother was a homemaker. I have five siblings. So as you can imagine, you know, we weren't exactly wealthy. Uh, We weren't poor. We weren't homeless. Uh, There was always food to eat. But I can remember one time distinctly that our parents sat us down and basically said, we're out of money for a while. We always knew there wasn't a lot of extra floating around, but we certainly weren't starving by any means. You know, we never lived in a tent or anything like that. So I'm curious about that. Knowing that you were maybe on the lower end of the economic spectrum, was there always, did you always know that medicine was going to be the profession that you were going to be working towards? Was that something that was instilled at you at an early age? No, I wouldn't say medicine was instilled in me at any point. The first time I think I ever considered it was probably eighth grade. I think in eighth grade, they start doing career stuff and actually force the kids to think about what they might want to be when they grow up. And I can recall that being a doctor was on my list. That's the first time I can remember ever thinking about being a doctor. I mean, prior to that time, I always got pretty good grades and did well on standardized tests and that sort of a thing. I can remember taking the Iowa test of basic skills. I don't know if they even still do that anymore. I know the kids around here don't do it, but I always got, you know, 98, 99th percentile. So, you know, there weren't a lot of doors closed to me academically, but no, I wasn't thinking about medicine that much at all prior to eighth grade. And I wouldn't say I thought about it a ton after eighth grade. I suppose when people asked me what I was going to do when I grew up in 
high school, I might've said a doctor or something like that. But I can remember distinctly a conversation I had as a junior in college with my father when I was had to get serious about whether I was going to go to medical school or not. And I had this conversation and I said, dad, if I go to medical school, I'm going to be 31 years old by the time I get out and start making any sort of a decent paycheck. And he said, you know what? You're going to be 31 then anyway. You might as well be doing something that you enjoy and something that makes good money, which is good, good advice. You know, he had the perspective that 31 was very young, whereas at the time, you know, in my early 20s, I thought 31 was quite old. <laughs> um, but it was really helpful, I think, to get that perspective from him that, that really helped launch me off and, and fully commit to, to going to medical school and becoming a physician. What about student loans? What about debt? Was that a part of your educational process? Did you cash flow? Well, I mean, I knew there was nothing coming from my parents for college. You know, they didn't pay anything for my si- older sisters. Uh, you know, it was pretty well known that all the, the expectation was that we would go to college. There wasn't, you know, some college fund, some 529 sitting on the side to pay for it. And so we just assumed we'd be paying for it on our own. You know, both my older sisters had student loans. And so when I headed off as a freshman, I took out a student loan. I think it was about $5,000. I took it out in 1993. It was through the state of Alaska, which is where I grew up. And it was uh, 8%. It was an 8% student loan. But it had pretty good terms in that it was basically fully subsidized and no payments were due while I was in college, medical school, residency, or serving in the military. So I actually ended up paying that loan back in 2010 in one lump sum. And that was the only student loan I ever really had. Uh, I figure I, I t- borrowed 5000 and paid back 3000 with the effect of inflation, but didn't really have a lot of student loans that way. And part of the reason was I applied to seven colleges, got into all seven, and I basically went to the one that gave me a scholarship, which was Brigham Young, and they gave me a full tuition scholarship. So all I had to come up with was living expenses. And uh, by that point, I'd learned to live pretty cheap. And so after my freshman year, I realized I could just work my way through, mostly by working hard in the summers, but also an occasional part-time job during college. And that's what I did. So I came out of undergraduate owing five grand to the state of Alaska. And that was it for student loans as far as uh, undergraduate goes. Now, when it came time to go to medical school, it's a little bit different story. Medical school is a little more expensive. Back then, it was only a little more expensive. Now, it's dramatically more expensive. And I'd just gotten married about the time I finished undergrad. And so I felt this real desire to be able to provide for my wife. And so her family comes from a long line of military folks. And so they were very encouraging to go into the military. And I said, well, I love my country as much as the next guy. And I'm looking for an adventure. And shoot, they'll pay for medical school. And so I signed on with the Health Profession Scholarship Program through the military. And that basically, they pay all your books and tuition and fees and then give you a stipend once a month. I think back when I joined, it was $920. Now I think it's closer to two grand. But that was basically how I paid for medical school. And so although I owed four years of time to the military by the time I got out, the only money I owed for my entire education was that five grand to the state of Alaska. Jim, there's a ton there that I'd love to ask about, but I wanted to start on, we're always looking for actionable tips for our audience and especially around college. And you said you got a full scholarship for undergrad. Were there any specific takeaways that you could pass on? Was this just straight up merit or did you have to apply? Did you look for that particular university? How did that work? Well, I think I could have done a much better job than I did looking for scholarships. And that was kind of the one that was offered. I think I was auto, I just had to check a box on the application to the college to be entered into the application for merit scholarships. And that's what that one was. But there are all kinds of scholarships out there. My wife did a much better job of this than I did. You know, a lot of people look at it as your job that summer between your junior and your senior year in high school to apply for scholarships. And if you take it seriously, you'll make a lot more money doing that than you will, you know, scooping yogurt down at the yogurt shop. So I think that's tip number one. But the biggest tip I have for people that go to college is for some reason in this country, we're stupid about education. You know, the one thing we should be smart about, and we completely divorce the cost of it from the value of it. You know, I think a 17 year old needs serious parental input into their college selection process. Too many kids are basically choosing their college because their friend went there or because they like the buildings on campus or the trees on campus or some silly thing like that. 
instead of looking at it as a real value proposition. There are still schools in this country that are relatively inexpensive and you can work your way through as an undergrad, even without any parental support whatsoever. So I think building block number one and picking a college is just pick a, a relatively inexpensive one. Jim, I know you have children and I'm curious how you plan to be involved in their college selection, how you plan to pay for it or not pay for it as it may be. I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Well, they've changed a little bit over time. I would say a few years ago, my plan was basically to do what I could to help them graduate from college without debt, but not to provide them a full ride, if that makes sense. So basically, I wanted to provide them enough that by working in the summer, maybe working a part-time job, maybe getting some scholarships and choosing a school wisely, that with my additional support, they'd come out debt-free. I think a lot of people are just kind of shackled to their student loans that they run up as an undergrad. And so being able to graduate debt-free, I think, puts you way ahead in life from that respect and gives you a lot more options. And so that's really important to me. You know, that's changed a little bit over time as the white coat investor has become more successful. I mean, it seems kind of silly for me to, you know, insist that they go to the cheapest possible school when I now have the means to really send them anywhere. And so we may get a little more flexible about that as time goes on. But honestly, we've been having this discussion with the kids for years and their number one school that they want to go to is relatively inexpensive. You know, Utah is a real bargain as far as it goes for for college, uh, you know, whether it's the flagship state university or the most well-known private university in the state, they're all, you know, six or $7,000 a year in tuition, which is dirt cheap compared to most other states. Brad and I have been grappling with the concept of inheritance on this show recently and talked about it a little bit back and forth, frankly, without really coming into any sort of absolute conclusions. I know you wrote an article called The 20s Fund, and, and the premise being the most useful time in life to receive an inheritance is in your 20s. Could you talk us through a little bit more of what your strategy is based on that? Oh, for sure. Who needs money when they're 60? I mean, either you're going to be successful by the time you're 60 or you're not. And anything your parents leave you behind probably isn't going to change that. But you know when you really need cash in life, when you could really use a hand up? It's in your 20s. I mean, think of all the expenses in your 20s. You've got a marriage, a honeymoon, a, a college, maybe professional or graduate school, a new house, a car, summer in Europe, all those kinds of things where you really don't have much earning capacity yet, yet you have all these expenses that can dramatically improve the quality of your life. So the way I've looked at it is I would rather give my children much less money in their 20s than a lot of money when I keel over and they might be 60. And so I've instituted basically three accounts for them. They've got a Roth IRA for any money that they earn, including money they earn modeling on my website. But also they have a college fund in a 529 and a 20s fund that's in a UTMA account that basically goes to pay for those sorts of things, missions and summers in Europe and weddings and, you know, maybe a down payment on a house, that sort of a thing. Because I think that's when they can really benefit from an inheritance rather than waiting until they're older. How many children do you have, Dr. Dolly? I have four kids. The oldest is 14. The youngest is two. So a pretty good gap there. Jim, you talked about a couple of things in there as far as those three different funds. The UTMA accounts for the 20s fund. How do you actually fund those accounts? Are there certain amounts that you look to put in each year? Are there any stipulations on, oh, they have to do certain jobs? I mean, as silly as it sounds, jobs around the house or jobs outside of the house, or is it just, hey, this is a fund that I'm giving you as part of what I believe to be the best strategy for your life? Yeah, it's definitely the latter. You know, they can get an allowance, I think it's a dollar per year of age per week if they actually do their chores, but they're not so good at doing that. So they don't actually earn much allowance around here. But this fund is just money that's being given to them. And the thing about a UTMA account is they turn 18 and it's theirs. You know, if they want to go blow it on cocaine and hookers, that's up to them. It's not a trust with some sort of, you know, legal stipulations on it. And technically, even if I tried to hide it from them or keep them from getting into it, you know, legally they could take me to court and it's their money. So you got to be careful with the UTMA and, you know, don't put money in there that you don't want them to have without any sort of stipulations whatsoever. But the plan is for them to use it how they want to use it. And hopefully I've taught them throughout their childhood and teenage years how to manage money. Because by that point, if I haven't taught them, it's probably too late. 
And Jim, you also snuck something in there about modeling on the site. And I, I really wanted to dive into that because a lot of people in our audience are looking for ways to get their kids earn income to fund a Roth IRA. And while everyone obviously doesn't have a successful website, people have different businesses and are just looking for ways to do this. Could you talk a little bit more about that? Oh, well, this is mainly a tax play, right? This is the best possible tax deduction you can get is to hire your children to work in your business. And as long as you're not incorporated, you know, you're a sole proprietor, a partnership for tax purposes, you can hire your children as long as all the owners of the company are those children's parents and you don't have to pay any payroll taxes, no social security or Medicare taxes on that money. And they can earn up to, I don't know, five or $6,000 a year before they owe any federal or state income taxes. So it's basically totally tax-free income to them, but it's deduction for the business. So this is money that's earned and is never taxed. Since it's earned income, they can put it into a Roth IRA and it'll never be taxed again. And if they leave it to their grandchild, it could potentially go 180 years without ever being taxed. And so it's really a great tax play to hire your kids any chance you get. Now there's a few rules. It's got to be legitimate work and you've got to pay them a legitimate rate for that work, but some things carry a very high rate. I mean, look it up on the internet, what a child model gets paid per hour. It's a pretty good rate. And so things like that, if you can justify to the IRS paying your kids for that, then I think you've, you've got a great way to get some money into a Roth IRA. But don't kid yourself. It's got to be legitimate. Every year, the IRS sends me a letter asking what my two-year-old is doing to earn money. And how do you document that? So you're let's say modeling, for instance, do you show certain pictures that ended up on the site? Do you say, Hey, this shoot took X number of hours. Like how do you actually document that? Well, they've got an employment contract, number one, and they've filled out all the appropriate employee paperwork. You know, you got to show the government that they're legally in the country and that sort of a thing. You know, they got to fill out a uh, W-4 form for instance, you know, and I issue them a W-2 and a W-3 at the end of the year. I also keep a timesheet for the hours they spend modeling. And typically this is done when we're on a trip, you know, that's when we, I shoot most of them. And so it's relatively easy to put that together. But yeah, if the IRS decides they're going to question me on this, I've got great documentation of that. I have no doubt that would pass through an audit. It also helps that it's a relatively tiny part of the income for this business. You know, if I was trying to write off three quarters of the income for the business, you know, I'm not sure that would fly with the IRS. I don't try to push it too much either. You know, I'm not paying them enough to max out a Roth IRA each year or anything. I think I'm at about $2,000 a year for each of them. And I think that's, I can justify that based on, on business purposes. You know, talking about modeling behavior, Jim, I know one of the things that you have done so consistently over the last several years is talk residents out of lifestyles of the rich and famous inflation play, just calming them down. But I'm curious, going back to your story as a college grad, a newlywed in med school, what about you guys, your frugality? Did you have that solid ground game or was, was there more of this light bulb moment later? Oh, wow. I wish I could have been better. No, I think we had a pretty solid ground game. I mean, my wife had no student loans in undergraduate either. We met at our, at our, at college. And so we both went to a relatively inexpensive college, but she didn't get the scholarship I got. Uh, she worked her way through. Um, she actually had what I'd call a 20s fund. It was, I think it was about 20 grand from her grandparents that she didn't use at all for college. And so she brought that into the marriage. I brought all the debt into the marriage. She brought all the assets into the marriage. And we used a lot of that to buy a house in medical school, which wasn't a particularly good move, to be honest. We ended up probably losing money on that overall. But, you know, she came from a long line of people that managed money pretty well. Her father actually was an accountant and her grandparents were, uh, you know, teachers who'd invested very well, especially considering the time period through which they were investing. And so she had a little bit better financial training coming into it than I did. The frugality I had down, though, you know, between working and donating plasma as an undergrad, I knew what it was like to live pretty poor. And so I think we had a good start that way. But from the first month of our marriage, we had a written budget. We, I can basically go to a filing cabinet and pull out every dollar we've ever spent in our 18 years of marriage. 
That's pretty cool, I think. But that's definitely a secret to our success is we got on the same page financially very early on. Well, let me talk a little bit more about your or get you to talk a little bit more about your frugality. You said you donated plasma. So we know you had the $5,000 in student loan debt. We know that you got a merit scholarship for a large brunt of what you were doing, but you also did a significant amount of cash flow for your undergrad. How did you fund that lifestyle? Tell us a little bit more about your frugality, essentially. Well, it wasn't much of a lifestyle. I mean, the I think I had five roommates my sophomore year in college. The rent was $188 a month because there were six of us paying it. I can remember spending about $100 a month on food. And, you know, there wasn't much else money being spent, I'll be honest. You know, I didn't have a car. I rode a bike around. Um, it wasn't until my senior year that I had a car. And that was basically one that I, I bought off my parents. It was probably worth $3,000. And, uh, you know, I wrote him a note for it. I had to pay him back as an intern once I finally got out of medical school. You know, so it was pretty frugal going there for a number of years. Um, I still remember the plasma. I remember what they paid. It was it was $20 the first time. No, it was $15 the first time, $20 the second time, $15 the third time, and $25 the fourth time before the cycle started over. Um, but I'll bet I did that a dozen times during college. What would happen is, you know, I'd mostly get my income in the summer working in Alaska and then come back to school. And by about March, I'd be kind of out of money. Uh, the rent had been paid through the end of the year by then, but I didn't have much to eat. And so, you know, the plasma and the part-time jobs and that kind of stuff was good money, quite literally. You mentioned that your first big financial mistake together was buying a house. What about you as a newlywed couple, your first encounter with financial professionals? You know, I know that what I see as soon as we get to the last year of pharmacy school or my peers across the street in medical school, they're going into that fourth year. You just start seeing the financial advisors circling the wagons. Is that what you were exposed to as well? Yeah, I think even before that point, I was running into the financial services industry. For example, a realtor, right? And this realtor was supposedly a friend of ours, but what should they have told a couple of students? I mean, we didn't even qualify for the mortgage ourselves. We had to get her parents to co-sign on the mortgage. We had no business buying a house whatsoever. You know, I think it was an $80,000 condo. We bought it for 80. We sold it for 83, four years later. But you know, with the transaction costs, we lost a ton of money, especially because it sat empty for a couple of months after we moved out. But we shouldn't have bought a house. The realtor should have told us that, you know, but that's not the business they're in. They're in the business of selling houses. And so I think it was a little bit naive of us to think we could get good advice from a realtor on that point. Uh, likewise, we refinanced it a couple of times while we were in it, both times really probably not particularly advantageously. You know, basically we got a little bit lower rate and we restarted our 30 year mortgage each time. And I remember one of the times the mortgage lender actually slipped in a penalty for paying it off early. There was a prepayment penalty. And luckily I caught it by going through the paperwork, you know, that inch thick stack of paperwork you go through when you do a mortgage. But I think those were the first couple of times when I realized that these guys didn't have exactly the same code of ethics that physicians have. I think another one was I was sold a whole life policy, whole life insurance policy as a medical student which what I could have used was a nice big fat term policy. But what did I get? I got a 20,000 face value whole life policy uh, from Northwestern Mutual, which was sold to me by a friend that was interning with them, which is kind of the usual story when it comes to Northwestern Mutual, unfortunately. I think I kept it for seven years when I finally realized that I don't need to have this. This is stupid. I, I think my overall return on that was minus 33% after holding it for seven years. Oof. Yeah, it's amazing how incentives just come into play in almost every aspect of human interaction, even though these are quote unquote friends, right? You're describing the realtor and the life insurance salesman, but it's all about incentives. The realtors, their incentive is to sell you a house or to get you to buy a house. Well, that's exactly right. And part of the difficulty is they really do believe they're helping you. They really do believe that whole life is a great insurance product. They really do believe that everybody should own a house, you know, but you actually have to step back and, and run the numbers and, and really ask yourself, is that really right for me? You know? And so that was just medical school. Those were the interactions I had with financial professionals in medical school. As I moved into residency and beyond, they just continued. You know, uh, I can recall a uh, financial advisor that sold me loaded mutual funds an inappropriate term life insurance. It was basically, it was a term life policy that went up every five years, whereas what I needed was really a level term policy. And so I ended up having to replace that later at, at greater expense, you know. 
But finally, in residency, about halfway through residency, it was just kind of the, the straw that broke the camel's back. I thought I was being put into no load mutual funds. They ended up being C share mutual funds, which is a type of load. And that just got me willing finally to go read some good books. So I started reading good personal finance and investing books. I actually read a lot of terrible ones as well. And luckily, I live near a used bookstore, so it didn't cost me much. But started reading, started interacting on blogs and internet forums. And after a couple of years of doing that, I realized I was doing more teaching to other docs than I was reading. And so that kind of led to me starting the White Coat Investor. Let's talk a little bit more about your exposure to in investing. You know, I could see how many people may start, all right, I need to invest. All right, I need to invest in a company. I need to go single stocks. Were you index funds from day one, mutual funds? And you talk specifically about a loaded mutual fund. I'd love for you to explain why you even knew to look for that. Yeah, well, I mean, my first investment was actually $500 in options on a stock. Uh, when I was a kid, for some reason, somebody convinced my dad to buy some options and he brought me along with him. And uh, we both lost our entire investment. You know, we had no business whatsoever investing in options. I must have been 12 at the time. And so that was my first experience with investing was losing my entire investment. The next time I invested was as an intern when I bought these loaded mutual funds. And I think it was a few months after meeting with the financial advisor a few times and buying those funds that I was on a road trip. It was one of the few vacations you get during residency. And I stopped in at a bookstore, it was Barnes and Noble or something. And I saw Mutual Funds for Dummies, a book by Eric Tyson. And I said, I own some mutual funds and I'm kind of a dummy. I should read that book. And so I did. I bought it and I read it. And, you know, it's a great book and talks about buying mutual funds from places like Vanguard and Fidelity and making sure you're buying a no-load mutual fund as opposed to one that carries a commission that pays the person who sold it to you. And so when I got home, I looked up my mutual funds and realized that what I owned was not what Eric Tyson was recommending I own. And that was really my first uh, real financial book. It strikes me that you're reading, you're getting information from a bunch of different resources. I know you said you were on the forums. I'm imagining, is this Bogleheads at this particular point in time? Well, before the Bogleheads was a forum on Morningstar called the Vanguard Diehards. And I was actually on that. Um, the transition over to the Bogleheads.org URL, you know, I remember that very clearly. It wasn't entirely sure that everybody was even going to go over there at the time. And so I, it kind of predates Bogleheads, to be honest. But that was certainly a major, major influence. I think by the time I started the White Coat Investor, I had 10,000 posts on Bogleheads, and I was probably the seventh or eighth most prolific poster there. Wow. And Jim, again, we're always looking for these actionable tips. So you're in these mutual funds with these loads, with these commissions. How do you unwind that? I, I've had a lot of people who come and, and send us emails or messages on Facebook, and they're in a similar situation and they need help. What were the action steps you took to get out of that and move to Vanguard or wherever else you, you eventually settled? Yeah, I know it's totally intimidating to do the first time because you've never done it before, but it's actually incredibly simple. You don't even have to tell the advisor if you don't want to. You literally go to Vanguard, you know, in whatever account you were invested in with the financial advisor. In my case, it was a Roth IRA. So I opened another Roth IRA at Vanguard and I filled out a one-page form that basically gave Vanguard permission to tell the previous custodian to sell all those mutual funds, transfer the money to Vanguard and invest it in Vanguard funds. And that's literally all I did. I think I did have a conversation with the financial advisor and said, thanks, but I'm moving on. Um, but, but that was really it. I mean, there's no tax consequences to doing that if it's inside a, a Roth IRA or an IRA or a 401k or something. You may have some uh, out-the-door fees. Sometimes there's an account closing fee. But typically, most loads are either A shares, whether you pay the load up front. And so that's already you know water under the bridge or C shares in which you're paying an ongoing load every month, basically in the form of a higher expense ratio for the mutual fund. Occasionally people might be in a B load fund, which is where you pay the load when you sell it. But those are much less common these days, I think. And so, you know, you may have to pay some fees, you may have to pay some loads, but basically you're moving from bad investments most of the time to good investments. So it doesn't take long to make up for the fact that you might've had to pay some fees to get out the door. 
And I know that you are a, a huge fan of creating an investing policy statement. Um, that is something, that's a concept that was relatively new for me, and I'm sure it will be for our audience, but I think that was kind of an inflection point for you. Could you explain what that is and why you felt it was necessary? Yeah, it sounds all fancy, right? But all it is is a written plan of what you're going to do. So I have people email me all the time as well. Should I invest in this mutual fund or you know, what should my asset allocation be? And they're really trying to shortcut the financial planning process. And the financial planning process is you first set your goals and then you choose an asset allocation or how you're going to divide up your investments between different types of investments for each goal. And then once you have that, then you select investments. And it's relatively easy to select investments once you have an asset allocation in place. That's actually the easiest step. But if you try to start at that step, it's really difficult. And so what an investing policy statement is, is you write down your goals, you write down your desired asset allocation, and you basically write down how you're going to behave in the future in any reasonable possible future market scenarios. So my wife and I first came up with one of these in 2005 while I was still a resident. And that's literally the blueprint we've followed to this day. That's what made us into millionaires, basically, is we wrote down how we were going to do it and what we were going to invest in and how much of our income we were going to save and, you know, that we weren't going to sell out at market bottoms, which we did not in 2008. In fact, we bought more and it really has been a guideline to us. And part of the benefit isn't so much having the statement as the amount of education and thought that has to go into making the statement in the first place. And so I think it's beneficial for every investor to have some sort of written investing plan. Then when you're tempted to invest in the you know, investment du jour, you can go back and look at your plan and go, hey, does this make sense in accordance with our plan? And if it doesn't, you ignore it. If it does, well, you add it on and you incorporate it into your plan. The, there was actually the last line on our plan was if we wanted to make any significant changes, there was a three month waiting period just to keep us from doing something stupid. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think everyone ought to get a written investing plan. And if you don't feel qualified to make it yourself, go hire a competent, reasonably priced financial advisor to help you do it. Jim, are there any templates that you've ever seen or have you made yours into a template to give away on your website? Obviously not with specifics that you include in your own plan, but is that something that's available? Oh, I think he actually yeah. has included his exact one with specifics, oh, wow. Brad. <laughs> yeah, I, I didn't leave much out of the one I published online. In fact, nice. I think the first place I published it was on the Bogleheads forum. He got picked up and stuck into their wiki. So if you go to their wiki for investing policy statements, mine is one of those in there. Uh, I think there's a couple of others there. A lot of people view it as being a lot more personal, you know, but truthfully, you can cut all the personal stuff out and and post the rest of it online. I mean, what does anybody care what my mix of total stock market to total <laughs> international stock market is? You know, nobody cares about that stuff. And so I think if we actually talk about these sorts of things and show other people our written plan, uh, you can do a lot more good than evil. Yeah, that's great. And and certainly I would have assumed and I did assume that it was more personal. So that's why I said that a minute ago. But yeah, that's wonderful. That's available. We'll certainly link to that in the show notes. And I'm curious, how often did you look at the investing policy statement did you and your wife ever sit down and say, okay, we need to review this or, oh, that's in our investing policy statement. So we're not going to do it. Like, was it, was it something that you really referred to? And also how often do you refer to it today? Is it just so internalized that you don't need to? Yeah, I think that's part of it. And like I mentioned earlier, the benefit is making it, not having it. And so by the time you make it and you've made a few, you know, put in a few buy and sell orders and rebalanced a few times, you've kind of got your asset allocation memorized. You know, it's not like it's that complex that you got to look at a sheet of paper every time it comes along. But we would definitely once a year, we would look at our investments, rebalance them, total them up, see what our return was for the previous year, see what our savings rate was for the previous year and talk about that for a few minutes. So we definitely you know, addressed it at least once a year. This really was a guiding influence in our financial lives. Now, I know that your path to where we are now includes a, a period of time in the military, partially because you took advantage of the scholarship program. Was it always going to be you were going to serve that commitment and then you were going to go out and be a civilian physician? Or was there an inflection point? I thought I would probably spend most of my career as a civilian. And that's part of the reason when it came time to go through the military match, which is where a doctor 
determines where they're going to do the residency after medical school, that I actually asked for a civilian deferment so I could train in a civilian program, despite being paid a little bit less as a civilian resident than you are as a military resident. But I wouldn't say I actually decided to get out after four years until I'd been on active duty for three or four or five months. And then I, I realized, you know, this just isn't what I want to do the rest of my life. Um, you know, it was great to serve for four years. I met some wonderful people. I had some opportunities that I wouldn't have had in the civilian world for sure. But I have no regrets about getting out after four years. That was certainly, you know, much more in line with what I wanted to do with my life. Physician on Fire, who's a friend of this podcast, has spent some time talking about arbitrage with regards to where you work. Whereas with most jobs, you're going to make more in the heavily populated coastal areas. You see this reverse trend with people in medicine. And I'm curious, working in, I believe you're working in Utah now. Is that the same trend that you see there as well? Yeah, for sure. I mean, there are some situations where you can make a little bit more in coastal areas as a physician, but in general, you get paid more when there aren't as many doctors around and more people tend to want to live in the coastal areas than they want to live in the Midwest. And so if you're willing to be a doctor in some small town in Indiana, you're likely going to be one of the richest people in town. Whereas you go be a pediatrician or a family practice doc in the Bay Area, you might be living hand to mouth. And so it's just a dramatic difference uh, from one area of the country to another, not only in cost of living and tax burden, but also in pay and relative lifestyles, especially given the various cost of living in different states in our country. You know, a lot of people think of Utah as this flyover state, you know, that it's, it must be cheap to live there. It's not on either coast. But I was looking at something just this week, and it looks like we've got the sixth highest average home price or median home price in the country of any other state. So I think where a lot of states, their home prices dropped dramatically, you know, at some point in the last decade, I think Utah's either recovered faster or just didn't drop as far because it's now becoming one of the more expensive places to live, unfortunately. So, Jim, that's really interesting information to me about the disparity in docs pays in, I guess, more populated areas and less populated areas. I'm curious, is that common knowledge among doctors as they're in medical school? And do you ever counsel docs to work in certain locations based on on that really interesting information that that might not be common knowledge? Yeah, it really isn't common knowledge. And part of that's because doctors aren't that uh, you know, informed when it comes to financial issues. And also because a lot of people just don't, you know, they don't care. They're like, I want to live in California. And that's just the way it is. Um, they don't even consider living in Arizona or Idaho or whatever. And so I, I don't think a lot of docs care. They figure I'm a doctor. I should be making enough to live anywhere I want. And I'm going to live in some place that's expensive. So no, I think you're doing a real service to at least let people know that there is another option. If you want to retire five or 10 years earlier, you know, you can move from Manhattan to, you know, Iowa. If you have a particularly high student loan burden, for instance, if you've got three times your gross salary in student loans, you know, a great way to take care of that is to go live in Nebraska for a few years, just because the cost of living and tax burden is so much lower than you might find in some of the more coastal states. So Jim, just to kind of piggyback on that, and this might actually lead us into how and why you started the White Coat Investor, but we talked before just really in passing about how you help residents and new doctors kind of counter that lifestyle inflation. I'm curious like where that came about. Like, so obviously you've done this research, you're passionate, you said you had 10,000 posts in the, the Bogleheads forum, but it's one thing going from, okay, I'm taking in this information to it's a passion of mine to explain this to other people. I'd love to hear kind of the origin story of that. Well, I mean, I think you've described it very well. It's really was a passion. I really wanted to help others who were following along behind me to avoid the mistakes I'd made and to be successful. You know, and that was something I did all the way through medical school and residency. You know, I was always looking out for the people that were a year behind me and trying to give them tips that would you know, help make their life a little bit easier. So that wasn't particularly new in that respect. But I realized after a few years of, you know, all those Boglehead posts that nobody was teaching this stuff to docs. They were coming back with the same questions over and over and over again. And I was sick of typing them into the internet. And so I figured, hey, I'll start, uh, I'll start a blog 
And then I can just link to the blog post that answers this question in depth rather than having to type three or four paragraphs all over again. And so that was kind of the main motivation to start it. It really was a passion play when I began the White Coat Investor blog in May of 2011. Now, it was for profit from the beginning. No doubt about that. I was hoping to have some sort of a source of passive income. But my goal was to be making $1,000 a month within a couple of years. And to be honest, I barely made that. I think that first year I had $900 of income and I wrote it all off. You know, I had enough expenses to write that off. So it wasn't particularly profitable in the beginning, despite the fact that it was a for-profit enterprise from the beginning. This is really interesting on multiple levels. I'm curious because of the precision that I alluded to at the beginning of this episode, you have written some of the most granular information on complicated stuff like the backdoor Roth. I think the backdoor Roth is kind of common verbiage in large part due to the work that you did. I'm curious, where was that idea inspired from for you? Where did, where did you originally read about it? And what was the first time that you used it? Was it after you started White Coat Investor or had you done it before you even got started with that? Well, I mean, the backdoor Roth IRA showed up in 2011. Basically, that's when Congress took away the rule that high earners couldn't do Roth conversions. And so the first year I did it was 2010. Uh, I'm not sure I actually had to do it that year. I don't think my income was actually high enough once I got to the end of the year that I had to go through the back door. But certainly from 2011 on, I've had to do my Roth IRA contributions indirectly by first putting them into a traditional IRA and then moving them into a Roth IRA. The first place I heard about it, I don't know, it might have been the Bogleheads Forum. It might have been from Harry Sitt, who blogs as the finance buff. He was certainly one of the early people talking about the backdoor Roth. Another person that was talking about it early on uh, was James Lang, who wrote the book Retire Secure. Excellent book. But I'm sure he was talking about it, you know, probably even before 2010 because he saw it coming. And so I didn't come up with the term by any means, but I've certainly been part of publicizing it. You know, I certainly wrote blog posts about it long before it ever showed up in Forbes and, you know, those kinds of sources. And so I think while it's mainstream knowledge now, at least among most high earners and those who are financially informed, it certainly was not even five years ago. Let's talk about White Coat Investor as a for-profit business that had less than $900 in revenue that first year. What kept you going? Because I know, having spent a lot of time on Chooseify, that it is not passive income. You know, you may aspire for it to be passive income at some point, but it's a bear. What kept you going? Now, for sure, you're right. It's not passive income. No part of this is passive. You know, are parts of it passive? Sure, but it requires you to put work in up front. You know, like the book I published in 2014, The White Coat Investor, A Doctor's Guide to Personal Finance and Investing. That took a lot of work up front. However, since then, it's been passive income. You know, all I do is a little bit extra marketing on the blog and that sort of thing for it. But for the most part, that part of it is passive. But writing blog posts, putting podcasts together, reaching out to advertisers, you know, none of that is anywhere near as passive as I'd hoped it was. Uh, You know, the hope of passive income never really showed up. Now, I did get income eventually, you know, and actually earn better now doing the white coat investor than I do practicing medicine. But passive, it's not, unfortunately. What kept me motivated, though? I mean, it was a passion project. You know, I really, really wanted to teach this stuff to doctors. And I was willing to do it for free, at least for a while. And so that's what drove it. Uh, It helped that I could see month to month that the income was climbing, though. You know, it wasn't very high, but it was going up. And so that makes you start wondering, well, how high can this go? You know, and I can remember my oldest daughter asking me, how much money did you make today? And we'd pull up Google AdSense and see that we made $2.15. And that was kind of fun to, to look back and think of those moments that I was excited about making $2 because two people had clicked on ads on the site that day. Brad, what does this remind you of? Because you've done this now with several online ventures. Do you remember those early days? Yeah, I mean, I certainly do. It's uh, It's about having that guiding light about helping people. And I think Jim, you said it perfectly. I mean, that's when you're sitting there toiling and you're wondering kind of, is this worth all the effort that I'm putting in when you're really in in the mines there, right? And, and working on it. But then you take that step back and say, but I'm actually making an impact on the world and in the way that I see as valuable. And I, I think to me, that was always the takeaway. And I mean, in all honesty, it's hard sometimes when you're working or something blows up and you have to fix it 
abruptly on the website or, or something crazy like that. But yeah, I mean, if you take that big picture view and say, wow, I'm really, again, making that impact. I think, I think that's what always helped me. And I would say that your journey, in many cases, you took up the mantle for doctors. I mean, doctors have kind of been low hanging fruit for just siphoning off fees and you kind of took up a mantle for them and were, was leading a movement. Yeah, for sure. I mean, fruit's a nice thing to call doctors. What most of the financial advisors were calling them, at least back then, was whales. You know, and the goal was to harpoon yourself a few whales, and then you could sit back and live off asset under management fees or loads, and and you were set. You know, if you could just get a few rich people into your financial advisory practice. And so I think that passion of, you know, leading the charge of my tribe, the doctors against the financial services industry, was a big driver in those first couple of years. Now, luckily over time, I've had the opportunity to meet, you know, some of the good guys in the financial services industry as few and far between as they may be. I guess I've softened a little bit what I write about them these days. Um, <laughs> but you know, for sure, that was a passion. It was, it was my tribe against the bad guys. Let's talk for a second about your wife and your family. You, I mean, I don't think anybody, when they think about the medical profession, thinks about a light load, an easy job. I mean, that can be all consuming in and of itself. And you have this platform that is probably taking up increasingly close to equal parts of your time. What did your wife think about this? Oh, well, it's way beyond equal at this point. <laughs> My wife is now a half owner of the White Coat Investor LLC, and uh, she does a fair amount of work in it as well. All the online courses, the bulk book sales, the speaking gigs, uh, the video editing, uh, you know, the setting up of our studio that I'm sitting in right now, this was all my wife. So this is not a one person operation anymore and hasn't been really since about oh, 2014, I think is the first time I brought somebody on to help. And so, you know, it's both of us together now really working hard in this as well as now we have three, three or four people we contract with to assist us with the white coat investor as well. And so it's a multi-person project for sure. But she has been just a rock in my life. I mean, there's no way somebody can do medicine, much less medicine plus something else, without all the other stuff in your life being taken care of by somebody, you know. And so who was that person? Well, that was Katie, you know. Uh, she was taking care of the kids. She was taking care of the household. She was, you know, taking care of all this stuff that allowed me to really focus on career. And in the end, it's worked out very, very well for us. So we're very happy that we made that division. We were both able to do the things that we excelled at. And, and now as the kids are, are getting older and moving into their school years, um, we have a chance to actually work together as well, which is pretty gratifying. Jim, you said Katie is a 50% owner of the business uh, formally now. So it sounds like something did actually legally shift there, or, or at least maybe how you describe this. Was that at all a play for maxing out her 401k? Were there other considerations? Because I mean, I guess technically she's a 50% owner no matter what, but were there other things that you thought of when you made that, that actual decision? Well, that's a, exactly it. You know, she's a 50% owner no matter what, you know, we get divorced, she's getting half of it. So we might as well formalize it as the way I, I looked at it. The benefits of doing that um, were primarily to get her to 40 quarters for social security, because at that point she didn't have 40 quarters yet, but also it opened up an entirely new individual 401k for us, which this year is $55,000, uh, in tax deferral. So a $55,000 a year tax deduction, that's worth an awful lot. The downside of course, is that I got to pay payroll taxes for, her, which isn't a big deal on the Medicare side, uh, because I got to pay those anyway. But on the social security side, you know, that's a whole new tax that we weren't paying before. And so when you weigh the additional social security tax against that tax deduction, you know, it's, it's not a hundred percent certain that we're coming out ahead doing it. But the truth was I needed the help. She was willing to help. And I thought it just made sense as a business to do it that way. And so we've taken the pluses and the minuses and, and that's the way we're doing it for better or for worse. We talk about something called the talent stack and putting these different skill sets together. And it's something that I am acutely aware of. I'm always trying to grow it. But when I talk and listen to you, I'm just blown away at the scope of the things that you're proficient at. And I'm curious, at what point from an accounting perspective, does this become too big for TurboTax for you? I mean, do you have an accountant at this point that is helping guide you through this stuff? Or are you still, still optionally digging through inches of tax code to figure this stuff out? You know, it, it, that's a very timely question. I sat down with an accountant two weeks ago 
mostly just to get tips. Um, but if she had been willing to take on, you know, the filing of the taxes and uh, maybe some of the payroll duties, I probably would have hired her on the spot. She was kind of busy doing some other things in her life at this point. So she's just going to consult with us from time to time. I think the biggest change um, has been in the last year or so. We're now filing as an S corporation. And that is a significant increase in tax burden and tax complexity, as well as tax penalties if you screw it up. And so this is really the first time I've considered actually hiring somebody to do the taxes for me. So far, I'm still doing them myself. And in fact, that's one of our tasks for later today is to file a 941, which is basically an employer's quarterly tax return. But I'm getting pretty close to to wanting to hire somebody to help us now. But, you know, for the last year, I've been filing those forms myself. So it's not like it's impossible to do yourself. Um, But at a certain point, you just got to wonder if it's worth your time. In light of that, and in light of kind of building this bigger business and bringing on a team, are there other aspects of your life or your business that you have decided, you know what, it's really not worth my time or someone can do this better, et cetera, like on certain tasks? Like what have you actually outsourced in your life and your business? Well, not as much in my life as maybe I should have. You know, I'm still mowing the lawn and cleaning the house, for instance. But in the business, what I've tried to do is to outsource stuff, number one, that I don't like, and number two, that I felt like somebody else could do as well or better than I could do. For instance, uh, some of the post-preparation and editing, I've completely outsourced. I'm basically seeing the guest posts now, most of the time when the readers are seeing them maybe the day before, but I've basically outsourced that completely. We run a guest post every Wednesday and it's completely in somebody else's department. Same with the Saturday WCI network posts. Basically don't touch those. I don't do any of the podcast editing. I don't do any of the video editing. I don't do any of the transcribing of the podcast. That's all outsourced. The first thing I outsourced though was actually management of the business relationships and the advertising. The first person I brought on was Cindy, who's still my business manager and still handles all the ads. And the reason why I did it was because I realized I was literally just leaving money sitting around on the ground. And so I knew by bringing somebody on, they could just pick up that money and more than pay for themselves. You know, I wasn't raising ad rates fast enough. I was forgetting to renew them, those sorts of things. And so that was really a no brainer to bring somebody on to do that stuff. So you did a profit sharing or commission based model. So they have skin in the game. That's right. Uh, The ad sales are all commissioned. But the great thing about that is that, you know, she's not only incentivized to sell them for as much as she can. But I'm also changing somebody else's life and their family. You know, it's pretty awesome to think that the white coat investor has not only brought, you know, rapid financial independence to us, but it's also making other families financially independent, which is pretty cool. I think that's the best part now of the whole entrepreneurial spirit of it. You know, at first it was making a buck myself, but now it's not only about creating something bigger than myself, but it's about creating jobs and they're good jobs, jobs you can do on your own time, jobs you can do from home. Um, you know, jobs that probably pay better than anything else you're qualified to do. And so that inspires tremendous loyalty among those I work with and, um, and really helps me feel like I'm doing a lot of good in the world. You know, they talk about these $15 minimum wage, uh, laws in Seattle and that sort of stuff. And I'm like, you know, none of my employees are ever going to be complaining about that. So Jim, I know that very recently you got an offer to buy White Coat Investor. And we should just say for the record that White Coat Investor as a media, it is frankly a media empire at this particular point in time. There's been a conference that's been set around this. You have a White Coat Investor network. There's a book, there's a video presence, there's a podcast. I mean, by any metric, you have achieved that upper echelon of success in this type of you know influencer space that we're, we're occupying. And I know you got an offer to walk away. I'm sure it was a very, very profitable and lucrative offer. And you said, no, is that because of impact? For sure. It's because of impact, but I'll tell you what it's really because of. And this, you know, this offer we got, I don't know, a year or two ago was a multi-million dollar offer. It was enough money that it was never work again, kind of money, you know, even after you paid the taxes on it. What that did was a couple of things. Number one, it was way more than I expected anybody to ever offer. 
I didn't realize it was worth as much as it was. And, you know, researching it as part of that process, I realized that, yeah, it was probably a fair offer. Um, but number one, that told me that what I was doing was worth more than I thought. And so that motivated me to actually do more with it, to cut back on some of my shifts in the emergency department, to come up with some more courses and conferences and podcasts and those sorts of things to try to maximize the value of it. So that was one thing it did. But the second thing it did was it got my wife and I talking. And when you get an offer like that, you know, you think about it a lot. You think about it all day long for a few days. You lay awake at night thinking about it. Uh, It's a big deal to make that sort of a decision. And what it came down to was, what am I going to do with the rest of my life? At that point, it's not about money. You know, with that sort of an offer sitting on the table, you're financially independent. And then it comes down to, well, are you done working? And I wasn't. You know, I'm in my early 40s. I'm not done working. You know, lots of people are going after financial independence so they could retire early. That's not my goal. My goal is to somehow mix together a balance in my life, including work, including recreation, including time with my family, including volunteer efforts that is ideal, that makes me happy and that does the most good in the world. And so that was really the reason why I turned it down, because I still have things I wanted to do, doctors I wanted to reach, impact I wanted to make. And so that's why I'm still here doing this. Now, am I still interested in making money? Yes. I love the things that money can do. You know, I can uh, use it to be incredibly generous to family members and friends. I can use it to donate to charities that I support. Last year, for the first time, we gave more money away than we spent. And so I'm very proud of that. And I'm hoping that that can be, you know, something we do every year going forward. But that's really what financial independence means to us at this point. Jim, that is truly incredible. And as Jonathan would say, I have chills down my spine. I mean, that's really, really remarkable. And, and clearly to me, impact is the theme that has run throughout your entire story here. Let's say there's some future doc that's sitting out there listening. What's the best advice that you would give to that person who's maybe in medical school and they're trying to figure out where their life is going to go? What's the advice you would give that person? Well, I think the advice that young doctors need to hear is that this financial stuff is not that hard, that they can learn it themselves, whether they use an advisor or not, they need to learn it themselves, and that they can do well financially as long as they take care of business and preferably take care of business early in their careers. The best four words I can give to any young doctor is live like a resident. And what I mean by that is when they become an attending physician or when they become a dentist that, you know, goes into practice, that they take the difference between the lifestyle they were living as a resident or as a dentist, uh, dental student, and the income they're now generating as an attending. And they take the difference between those two and use it to build wealth for just a few years. Just two to five years is plenty. And if they will do that, if they will live the lifestyle of a resident, while earning like an attending, they can be set up for the rest of their financial life for incredible financial success. They can pay off all their student loans. They can catch up to their college roommates on their retirement savings. They can save up a down payment for their dream house. And then after two to five years, grow slowly into their attending income and have a financially awesome life. But the problem is we just get too impatient. We're trying to live like an attending before we even get out of residency. And we end up being like the person who sent me a Facebook message this week that was literally living hand to mouth while making $180,000 a year. Jim, thank you so much for sharing your story. This has been absolutely incredible. You know, normally it's so awesome. I would just end the episode right here. But on this show, we would love to give you the chance to tackle the hot seat. Are you ready for this? I'm ready. In a world drowning in debt and rampant consumption, trapped by the chains of lifestyle inflation, these questions highlight the secrets of those who have broken free. Welcome to the Choose FI Hot Seat. All right, Jim, question number one, your favorite blog that's not your own? 
Well, my two favorite blogs that aren't the White Coat Investor are Physician on Fire and Passive Income MD. But technically, I own tiny percentages. So <laughs> I, I, really, I can't really count those. So I'm going to go with Jonathan Clements' Humble Dollar. I hate him because he's such a good writer. And every time he writes something, I wish I'd written it. But uh, I was very pleased to have him out at our White Coat Investor Conference to speak to the docs. And uh, I'm in awe at his ability to write and summarize financial information. That's awesome. I'm actually not familiar with this blog and we'll we'll definitely both link to it and and I will check it out personally. Question number two, your favorite article of all time. Now this can be one that you wrote with, uh, gosh, how many articles have you written at this point or somebody else's? Well, I'm not going to claim one of my own. That's a little bit too uh, arrogant of me. (laughs) In fact, one of the ones I read recently ought to be named. It was called The Psychology of Money by Morgan Housel. And it is a masterpiece. Another one of those things that I wish I'd written myself. I read that one as well because it came across my my radar probably around the same time. And it is, you are right. It is a masterpiece. Incredible, incredible article. We'll link to that in the show notes. Yeah, I'm Googling that right now, Jim. I've, I've never read that. So it's certainly as soon as we get off this podcast, I'm going to read it. That sounds amazing. All right. Question number three, your favorite life hack. My favorite life hack is to drive a beater. People dramatically underestimate the reliability of an old car and the expense of driving newer ones. I mean, just in what you drive alone as a typical middle-class person, there's a million dollars there. If you'll drive, you know, an inexpensive car instead of a nicer car throughout your working years, it's a million dollars. And a lot of people just don't realize that. Yeah, that's been a huge difference in my life. I know my wife and I both drive 2003 cars. I have a Honda, she has a Toyota and yeah, I mean, we're going to drive those things forever. It's an enormous savings. It really, truly is. All right. Question number four, your biggest financial mistake. Believe it or not, my biggest financial mistake was not taking out student loans for medical school. The year I started medical school, it was $10,000 a year. And I could have paid off those student loans by Thanksgiving uh, as an attending. But, uh, you know, instead going into the military, I ended up owing four years of my life. And so if you actually add up the dollars and cents, that was the biggest financial error I ever made. I'm not sure I regret it. I enjoyed my time serving. But, uh, you know, if you can add up the dollars, that was the biggest mistake. It's incredible that do the math can work both ways. Yeah, it really can. I mean, these days, the, the scholarship, you know, it's really a contract is a much better deal because tuition in medical school has gone up so dramatically. But back then when tuition wasn't that high, especially at the school I went to, it really wasn't a great financial deal. Jim, question number five, the advice you would give your younger self. Oh, I think I'd tell my younger self, you need to listen to your wife more and be more patient with your kids. That'll work. Yeah. I mean, that's it. When you look for the things you really regret, they tend not to be career related. They tend to be more family and relationship related. Jim, we have one quick bonus question for you. So in the FI community, we often talk about cutting expenses and saving money, et cetera. But there are certainly purchases that add value to our lives, and it's really important to highlight that. I'm interested in the purchase you've made in the last, let's say, 12 months or so that's added the most value to your life. My favorite purchase in the last year is actually this set of sliding, you know, wire see-through drawers. And I replaced my dresser with them. Now I can actually see my clothes. I've got room to put my clothes in there. My wife totally makes fun of me. But then guess what she did? She went out and bought them for herself and for the kids. So <laughs> that's, our, that's our new purchase around our house, and we all love them. That's great. Did it lead to you getting rid of any clothes? Was this a tidying issue as well, or was it just to get it out there so you could see them? Yeah, it was mostly so I could see where my clothes were. But <laughs> you know, we are definitely talking about and thinking about and you know, reading about minimalism. Certainly, there's a lot of stuff in our life that our lives would probably be better if we got rid of. Jim, I know that there are so many doctors and pharmacists and other high income professionals that listen to this podcast. And I, and I suspect that the large percentage of them are already well aware of the wonderful work you're doing over at white coat investor, but for the person that's hearing your story for the first time and wants to connect with your content, what is the best way to connect with you? Whatever way they prefer. This is exactly what we've been trying to do for the last five years is put content into the format that you like it in. If you like a blog, great. We've got that podcast, videocast, email, newsletter, forum, uh, Twitter feed, Facebook feed. We're in the process now of starting a Facebook group, probably going to have a subreddit, Um, you know, just however you prefer to get your financial information. That's how we're going to give it to you. This has been a blast, Jim. Thank you so much for coming on the show. 
Thank you. I appreciate your time. Brad, I, I think it comes across in this episode what a fan I am of both Jim and the work that White Coat Investor has been putting in to this online space. It's so precise. It's so on point. It's so actionable. But I didn't know his backstory. And I don't think that he has really shared it like this in any other format. So I was incredibly grateful that he was willing to come on the show and just kind of walk us through the why behind White Coat Investor. Yeah, I agree entirely. This was a wonderful interview and Jim really dove deep into his story and just gave us a lot of actionable content for the audience. So, I mean, that in and of itself is fantastic, but, but it's that theme of impact, right? It's what his entire life is about now. And I was just so incredibly impressed. I mean, this is a guy that was just offered, I mean, if you read between the lines here, many, many millions of dollars to buy the white coat investor. And he just flat out said, no, I mean, that is incredible. And it's because he has this guiding light of impact on the world. That means so much more to him than money. That's impressive. All right. If you got value from today's episode, if you've been getting value from the episodes up to this point, just take one second and press the subscribe button on the platform you're listening to this on. It just lets the providers know you're getting value from the show and you want to be here when we produce additional content. If you want to support us and what we're doing here at Choose FI, here are four easy ways. One, leave us an iTunes review. If you want to do that, just go to chooseify.com slash iTunes. Two, use our page to sign up for travel credit cards. If you want to travel the world with miles and points instead of your hard-earned dollars, then just go to chooseify.com slash cards and get started today. Three, if you're working on the milestones of FI, set up a personal capital account to track your progress and use our affiliate link. It's completely free and just go to choosefi.com slash PC, P as in Paul, C as in Cat. And four, and most importantly, find your friends, coworkers, and family members who might be open to this message and tell them about the podcast. Have them start with episode 38, The Why of FI, and right behind that, have them go listen to episode 21, The Pillars of FI. It is a fantastic starting place. All right, my friends, the fire is spreading. We'll see you next time as we continue to go down the road less traveled. You've been listening to Choose FI Radio Podcast, where we help middle-class America build wealth one life hack at a time.